the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul's status as a Roman citizen means that Roman officials now start to get involved in his case. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 23, verse 12. The title of the message is God's Timing. Acts 23. Acts 23, and if you're uh, taking notes, we're going to be going to Ephesians chapter 4 and John 16. Acts 23, Ephesians 4 and John 16. Well, Paul's got himself into a bit of a fix. He goes to Jerusalem in opposition to the warnings of the Holy Spirit. And it does not go well, and he ends up being arrested by the Roman captain, Lysias, as we'll see his name shortly. And as Lysias is trying to figure out what's going on, he brings Paul down, he lets Paul speak first, and that doesn't go well. And then he brings Paul down for a trial with a Sanhedrin, and that doesn't go well. Paul ends up insulting the high priest, and he ends up creating this big, huge division by claiming to be with the Pharisees. And it just it creates this whole negative situation. And into the midst of that, for two days, Paul spends those two days in prison, and the Lord comes to stand by his side in that discouragement and tells him, cheer up, Paul. You're going to go to Rome, and there you're going to get to preach for me. But you know, it's interesting. The time between God's declaration and the fulfillment of that declaration is over three years. To top it off, during those three years, Paul remains incarcerated. It had been very easy for Paul during those three years to doubt the Lord, to stop waiting on God faithfully. But as we'll see today, he doesn't. In response to God's goodness, despite his current incarceration, he keeps walking with the Lord, trusting that God's timing is perfect. And so as we see his example this morning, may it stir us in us a faith that trusts God's timing, no matter what our circumstances might seem to tell us about his declarations. So chapter 23, verse 12. So after the Lord encourages him, verse 12, when it was day, the next morning, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves with a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. I know how that ended. Not good. So 
But anyway, they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. 40 guys who said, we're going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse. And again, this idea is to invoke a curse of God upon themselves. God strike us dead if we eat or drink before we kill Paul. Uh, Do we eat nothing until we have slain Paul? Now, therefore, you with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, will be ready to kill him. So there, this is the plan. You know, the the meeting kind of ended in this big riot a couple days ago. So tell the captain you want to inquire more about Paul and find out more information. And when he gets anywhere close to us or when he comes down for that, we'll kill him. And so this is the plan. Now, you might be saying, how in the world do these people who obviously feel they're very religious, they have a good reason, how are they justifying murder like this? Well, Jesus in John 16, and keep your finger there because we're going to go back later, but in 16 verse 2, he explained that there would come a day when this happened. He says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that they're doing God service. They think they're actually serving God. In our day, there are many people who feel they're doing a great justice by eradicating biblical ideals from our culture. They're doing the right thing. They think they are the champions of truth, the champions of liberty, the champions of justice. We are the ones holding humanity back. We're holding back from the next great evolution. We're holding back from all the things that make society great. We are the party poopers. We won't let people sleep together when they want to, when they love each other. And so we are just the bad people, right? Among other things. And while I'm not a doomsday person, the Bible predicts that the world will seek to remove those who hold to those ideals from our culture as well. That there will come a time when under the headship of the Antichrist that the world will seek to eliminate anyone who holds to God's truths and then think they're doing good the entire time. It's very easy to kind of look out there and to get discouraged, but what we really need to see is how much the world needs the truth and love of Jesus Christ. I think to myself, the Bible talks about strong delusion that's going to come, that men would believe a lie. We're not there yet. The light is still out here, right? There's still an opportunity to share. So we know what's coming. We know it's there, but it's not here yet. And so rather than batten down the hatches and fill up our cabinets with canned goods and think that that's the way we're going to survive, we need to take the mentality like the early church did and say, let's go out and win for Christ. Let's go out and while there's still light, while there's still time, share the gospel. It may not be liked. It may not be well-received at times. And it might cost us something, but that's okay. You've got a whole Bible of company. Remember the whole theme, that, that chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, where it talks about we're surrounded in chapter 12 by this cloud of witnesses of all these? It talks about the great faith of Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and many others, but then it talks about others who were sawn in two and stoned and beaten and left for dead. There are times in a culture when we have great triumphs and and it seems like we're impacting our city and I'm hoping that God would send revival like that. But if persecution is what we are headed for, I'm not saying we are, but if that's what's next, We can still shine as lights. We can still win the lost because God still loves people and Christ's cross is still sufficient. Our world needs the truth and love of Jesus Christ. 
Well, verse 16, when Paul's sister's son, his nephew, heard of their lying in wait, this plan, it says he went and entered into the castle, the Antonia fortress where Paul was being held, and he told Paul. So then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, hey, bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he has a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto you who has something to say unto you. Now, this is the first mention of Paul having a sister and a nephew. We have no clue who they are. But since Paul was a Pharisee and his father was one, some have speculated that maybe his nephew was also. And that's kind of how he got wind of this plan. So he hears that they have made this agreement that they're going to do this. And so he says to the captain, the chief captain, verse 19, took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, what is it that you have to tell me? And he says, well, the Jews have agreed to desire you that you would bring down Paul tomorrow unto the council, to the Sanhedrin, as though they would inquire something of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him more than 40 men which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready looking for a promise or an agreement or consent from you. The only thing that's waiting for this plan to go into place is for you to agree to bring Paul down. And so the commander, verse 22, then he let the young man depart and he charged him, see that you tell no man that you have showed these things unto me. And then he goes into crisis mode, verse 23. And he called him two centurions saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, three score and 10, 70 horsemen and spearmen 200 at the third hour of the night. So about 9 p.m., He says, when everybody's already gone to bed, nobody's out anymore, he says, I want you to go ahead and and you get this huge massive force ready and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring them safe unto Felix, the governor. And the commander does not want those who are conspiring against Paul to have any time to prepare for a new plan to kill him on the way. They're going to go overnight. So now, and I say, why would he do such a a desperate plan? And why is he so worried about this? Well, remember the zealots, these guys, they would kill anybody. The zealots were known for their their assassinations. They, they would have these guys who'd be trained specifically for assassination. They'd have a special dagger they'd use. They would, they would walk around with this thing. They would mingle in the crowds and their whole focus was to go and kill that person. And then if they died, they died, whatever. There was no problem for them to die. That's who Barabbas was. That's who Jesus was not set free for, one of these assassins. And so <clears throat> for him to lose a Roman citizen under his care that he'd already mistreated due to ignorance, because remember, he almost had him whipped, uh, would have been a blight on his record, uh, probably cost him his job. And so he ensures Paul is going to have a safe trip against any attempt until he's out of his hands. And so verse 25, he's going to get him out of his hands. He's going to get him into Felix the governor's hands. And he wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysias, so that's, we finally learned the captain's name. Unto the most excellent governor Felix sends greeting. Felix was an interesting character. He was a former slave who'd been made the procurator of that area of Palestine. Palestine is not really a place. You know, it's interesting. We, we talk about this. We refer to that area over in Israel as Palestine. The Romans named it Palestine after this. It was not named at this time. They named it because they couldn't stand the Jews. It was after they had rebelled that final time in 66 AD and lasted all the way through to 70 AD and beyond. They expelled all the Jews out of Israel and they renamed the place Palestine, which means the land of the Philistines. 
which is very interesting when you see the whole Palestinian crisis in Israel today. That's all they are. They're Philistines is what they're saying. The ancient enemies of Israel. So just a little bit of information there. But Felix was a former slave and made the procurator of that area in 52 AD by Emperor Claudius. It's about 57 AD right now. Due to his, the emperor's friendship with Felix's brother, Pallas. Tacitus, who was a senator and a historian of the Roman Empire, called Felix one of the most depraved men of his time, stating that with all cruelty and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. Paul may be escaping one shark, but it's only to enter the waters of a bigger one. But at this point, Claudius just wants him out of his hands. He says, this is a mess. I keep getting in trouble. I just want him out of my hands. And so he says, Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor Felix, sends greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed by them. But then I came with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. A little bit of twisting there. The Jews might claim that he had robbed them of their justice. And so he makes it clear, my intervention was fully justifiable, even though he didn't find out Paul was a Roman until much later on. So he's twisting it a little bit, but again, he's trying to cover his own self here. And when I would have known or tried to get to know the reason why they accused him, I brought him forth under their counsel whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law, but to have laid nothing to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before you. He didn't do this either. He's not going to tell him this till the morning. To gave commandment to his accusers also to say before you what they had against him. Farewell. <laughs> He's in your hands now. And so then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, they took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. It's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, halfway to Caesarea. So they covered some good ground in the middle of the night. Antipatris was a military relay station that marked the border between Judea and Samaria. And so the soldiers in charge probably figured Paul was safe from here on out since most Jews wouldn't step on Samaritan ground. And so it says in 32... On the next morning, they didn't keep traveling. On the next morning, they left the horsemen to go with him, and they returned back to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor from Claudius Lysias, presented Paul also before him. And so when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province Paul was from. And the reason he asked that is not what province, but what kind of province is what that means. In Rome, there were senatorial and imperial provinces. If Paul was from a senatorial province, then he would have to be tried by someone there as a, the appointments were made by the Roman Senate and not the emperor. Our government's not the only one that had kind of, you know, special favors and, you know, that you don't do it this way and you don't step on toes. They had that back then too. And so if it was a senatorial province, he was an imperial appointment and therefore he could not try Paul. Paul. And so when he answers and he says here that he was, uh, when he understood that he was of Cilicia, he said, well, I will hear you. Cilicia was an imperial province, so it meant that Paul could either try the case himself or he could have the governor of Syria, Cilicia's governor, try the case. But he tells Paul, I will hear you, said he. he. He elects to try the case himself since the event occurred in his province. So he says, I will hear you, says he, when your accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall or just Herod's palace. Herod did not live there very often. Herod Agrippa II, who was in charge at this time, lived elsewhere. Chapter 24. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders 
and with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. The orator is just another word for lawyer. This would be uh, customary in the Roman provinces and especially necessary for these Jewish men because they did not operate under Roman legal procedures. They would not understand the formalities that would be required. Uh, I think it's interesting that they accuse Paul of associating with Gentiles, but they do so to bring him down. So it's just kind of ironic. But this guy, he informs the governor against Paul. So he's going to bring the formal indictment charge, and verse 2 begins it. But before they actually bring the charge, they got to butter Felix up a little bit. And when he was called forth, Tertullius began to accuse Paul, saying, Seeing that by you, Felix, we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by your providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. We're so glad you're in charge. The word there, very worthy deeds, you've brought improvements, you've brought reform to the area by your providence. This is a phrase that was almost exclusively used for the emperor himself. This is really high language. Now, the reason they use really high language is because he's not a really good guy. In fact, the Jews could not stand this guy. He was held in low esteem, not just by the Jews, but by many Romans. And so they, they want to butter him up and make him feel like, oh, we really are glad you're here. We're really glad you're going to try this case. And so in verse 4, he finally gets to the point, and he makes his first accusation. He makes two, but this is the first one. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto you, I don't want to bother you so much to irritate you and hinder all this progress you're bringing to our, our society. I pray that you would hear of us, of your clemency, a few words. You know, the word clemency there means one who makes reasonable concessions. The lawyer had to stress this because their claim is completely unreasonable and a waste of Felix's time. And so he says in verse 5, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, a troublemaker, a public menace, and a mover of sedition. And so here is the accusation, an inciter of riots. He is an instigator of riots. And it says, among all the Jews throughout all the world, so not just here, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So the first accusation here is a big deal because the Jewish people had a reputation for rebellion in the Roman Empire and had recently been expelled from Rome by the emperor because of it. Felix would be very familiar in these things and he would be much more interested in this charge than the religious charge that they bring, which is why they bring this charge first. Now, the second charge is special to the Sanhedrin and the unique power that was given to them by the Roman government, verse 6, who also has gone about to profane the temple, to desecrate the temple, whom we arrested, we took, and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto you. And so the second charge here is laid out in a much more nefarious way. We had no intention of bothering you, Felix. We were going to handle this all by ourselves. But that Lysias, he got in the way. Now, this is a serious charge because it would mean that they had been denied their legal right, which meant they might create drama if not granted their desire. And Rome did not like drama, and Felix was on a short leash. In fact, in two years, he'll be recalled by Caesar Nero, and we never hear from him again. And so... By examining of whom yourself you may take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. 
And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So they said, listen, this is our charge, and if you examine him, if you thoroughly look at him, the word there means to examine thoroughly up and down. If you look at this whole thing, you'll know that we are true in our accusation. How is he going to prove that? They have no witnesses or anything. But they're trying to get him to do something by making him think, if I don't do something, it will create problems. And so he turns to the Jews, and they assented. They said, yes, this is our accusation. Now, Real quick before we move on, the phrase there, examining, it's the same word that Pilate used to describe his examination of Jesus when he found him innocent of all the accusations of the Jews. He examined him up and down, all around. And you know, it's interesting, the Bible says that Jesus was like us in every way except one, right? He was without sin. There was nothing to find. You know, when Pilate came forth and he said, I find no fault in this man, what a tremendous testimony because Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who did no sin, that we who do sin might be forgiven. Well, Felix now turns to Paul, verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had gestured to him, beckoned unto him to speak, Paul answered and said, For as much as I know that you have been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. You know, it's interesting, Paul never got a chance to make his defense in the past, but this time he does. And so he doesn't butter up, Felix. He handles it completely differently. He says, listen, I know that you've been a judge here for a long time, and so because of that, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Felix had been in charge here for about seven years at this point. And, and Paul, you know, he, he doesn't flatter him like they do, but he does find a positive. He says, listen, you've been here for a while. You've been in charge for a while. I know you know the culture of, of here. I know you know why these guys don't like me. I know you know about my faith and their faith. So I'm happy about that. And Paul leaves it at that. He finds a positive. You know, there is a dignity and a humility to Paul in this defense that we're going to see here. A much different attitude than the one he had before the Sanhedrin. And I believe God's call to Rome has put him at ease. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I find that ministry is hard when I'm striving in my own energy. You ever found that out? You're trying to do something for the Lord, but you're trying to do it in your own strength. It's like swimming through mud. But ministry is also hard when I try to force God's hand and the timing isn't right. I've tried to do that. We have to get this done, or this has to be, or if this, we don't do this, then this is going to happen. And when I try to make things happen, ministry is hard. I have found that when I'm just trusting the Lord, waiting on him, and trusting in his timing, that it's much easier to serve him, much easier to serve him. Paul, verse 11, he answers the first charge. He says, I'm innocent of the first charge. He says, because that you may understand... There are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people inciting a riot, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. I, I didn't do anything. I came and I hung out with all the believers. And then when they found me in the temple, it was for a different reason. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Paul directly but politely explains that they have no case against him in light of their charges of rioting and defiling the temple. The only legitimate charge that they say is they say he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a Christian leader. And Paul addresses that in verse 14. But this I confess unto you. The word there means to admit or be guilty of. This I am guilty of. He says that after the way, remember that was the way that they described the Christianity at that time. It was known as the way. That after the way which they call heresy, 
so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Those are some good things to be guilty of. (laughs) First off, he says, I am guilty of some things here, I don't believe the same thing that they do. I am a Christian. He says, I do. After the way which they call heresy, so I worship the God of my fathers. Why? Because I believe all things which are written in the law and the prophets. That's a good thing. Paul says, they say I'm off base because I believe the entire Bible. That's interesting. Because today, this is the charge levied against those who reject the exclusive claims of Jesus and the Bible's definition of right and wrong, isn't it? You believe the whole Bible? That's nonsense. No one believes in that anymore. No one believes in a fairytale God who made all the earth in seven days and six days and rested on the seventh. Nobody believes in all those rules and nobody believes in those things of right and wrong. Don't you understand? But here's the truth, guys. Where else do we find anything else about redemption if not the word of God? Where do we find anything about Jesus if not from the word of God? It's either inspired or it isn't. It's that simple. It's either we believe it or we trash it. Either we believe it all or we trash it all. Because there's no sin if there's no standard. And there's no salvation if there's no sin. And there's no savior without a substitutionary death. You cannot just grab bits and pieces. Paul said, if all of it isn't true, if the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, if it's not true, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Indeed, if all of this isn't true and this is what we believe, then we of all men are most miserable. We are. We're the dumbest people around. Because we should just live as if tomorrow's our last day and there's nothing else coming. See, the truth is there is something else coming. And either you stand in Christ or outside of Christ. Either you're righteous or you're not righteous. There's no kind of halfway. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407 523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.